Welcome to a slightly belated weekend sportscast podcast, uh, brought to you as always by the fine people at Cooper Tyres and the equally fine, if not at sometimes even finer people at the Justice Brothers. Um, slight delays here with logistics with uh, myself, Graham Goodwin, coming back in from Suzuka and suffering what can only be described as dramatic fatigue and uh, that clashing with uh, Marshall Pruitt uh, and his uh, need to actually get moving for Portland for IndyCar uh, this weekend. That means that um, not usually of late uh, I'm joined not by Marshall but uh, by my partner in crime on Daily Sports Car and with Race.com, uh, Stephen Kilby. Hi Graham, I can hear the collective groan from all the listeners oh, no, already, they're not even listening yet. You, you join us actually, um, I mean just uh, arrived at uh, one of the world's most extraordinary hotels, I'll describe that in a moment, um, as we're approaching the track action for the weekend for the season opener for the FI World Endurance Championship uh, at Silverstone, also double heading with the European Le Mans series. Uh, we're here at a uh, hotel in the... It's, it's known as the Monaco of the Midlands, at Milton Keynes, um, based on a grid system, just like you, New York, and uh, it's absolutely, completely exactly the same as New York in every possible way. <laughs> Not. Uh, and this hotel, extraordinary by the fact that our, our um, view out the window is actually of a football stadium, and I mean the inside of a football stadium, uh, the MK Dons, a t- team with a fantastic... Um, history and hated by everybody in Wimbledon which is closer to where I live than we are at the moment um, Stephen it's been a busy day uh, before we get into questions we'll have a quick chat about uh, what we've been up to but uh, let's start with what you've been up to and uh, some material to come on the Marshall Pro Cup podcast we hope very soon um, a very different bit of in-car indeed to come what have you been up to today? Mm, I've spent time at a circuit which I didn't know still existed <laughs> <laughs> which is rocking a motor speedway, which stopped stopped uh, hosting races at the end of last year. Was it early this year? Yeah. Certainly, very recently. Yeah, very. Recently. I expected to turn up there, rubble. Well, yeah, it to be rubble. It to look like Donington when they tried to convert it into a Formula One circuit recently. Or, actually, or Snetterton at any point. Yeah, or Snetterton at any point. But actually, it's in remarkable nick, and the, the circuit looks fantastic. They've done a rebrand. Everything's functioning kind of as normal. They're just not running races there anymore. So, I'm, from what I understand, it's been used for track days and corporate days and all sorts. So, it's still getting used. Um, and I was there for um, an announcement that uh, happened this morning, which was the fact that Brabham Automotive has partnered globally with Goodyear Tyres. So, this is a, another arm of what Goodyear's doing in its return to um, sports cars and racing. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a. A quite bizarre experience, something I didn't expect to be doing a couple of days ago, which was being driven around Rockingham on the national circuit on the infield by David Brabham in the BT62, and I have got in-car audio, which is going to be fantastic. I can I can assure you, everyone listening now is going to want to hear that thing. It is an absolute beast. Fantastic stuff. I mean, we, we do know uh, that the Brabham will be, uh, this is the BT62, of course, will be coming back to racing at the Brick Car Night Race. It's uh, not a top international race, but good to see the car uh, going to be getting out there with this uh, this Goodyear Association. Uh, but the bigger news came when you had the opportunity to talk not just to David Brabham, but also to the marketing guy from Brabham Automotive as to what it is they're looking at. Now, the last time we had Brabs on the... Uh, Inside the Sports Car Paddock podcast was back in February with me at Bathurst where that car broke the outright lap record the official outright lap record around the mountain Brab's telling me then that uh, the 
uh, Brum Automotive Brands racing aspirations indeed do focus around GTE or did focus around GTE but not with a BT62 the car that will follow that will be a more road focused car but slightly different answer uh, and a very different answer in one regard a slightly different answer in another regard you got today yeah so I spoke to Dan Marks who's the commercial director at Brabham Automotive and he said that since the hypercar announcement in June they're kind of not I think it's safe to say that what what he says about GT, what Dave Brabham said about GTE and them evaluating that still stands. They're still looking at GTE, but they are, in fact, now doing a full evaluation of hypercar prototype. With the BT62? With the BT62. Um, so he wouldn't tell me much about this newer model that um, that you alluded to, the fact that uh, the one that... Might be the BT63. Might be the BT63. Because we'll hear about that before the end of the year. He can't tell me how much we'll hear about it, but we'll have some news soon about that. I think the moment they're just having a little bit of a look around a bit of everything they seem to think after um after having a look at the hypercar prototype regulations that that actually fits the bt62 more um, than they're expecting i don't think they're going to do anything to do with hybrids certainly not now uh, that's yep. not on the agenda but in terms of molding that car into that set of regulations they seem to think that they, they, they could do that uh, whether it will happen or not, I don't think they know. But they're certainly, they they're certainly lucky. seem to, be, yeah. And they're interested. And you know what David's like. He's a, he's a fellow that is he, really determined to do this. He's an energizer bunny of a of a character. Very very keen indeed on this revival of the Brabham name into track, you know, into a car and into track action and now into racing. It's going to be interesting to see. As for the rest of the weekend, um, we're now welded into press rooms across Silverstone, two different pit lanes in use, two different paddocks in use. Um, it is a feast of entertainment if you're trackside. It is pure torture if you're actually working this race meeting. Um, we've got the new look 2019-2020, uh, a.k.a. Season 8. You'll be hearing a lot of that moving forward for the WEC. We've had a chance to see that grid with some new-look cars and a couple of very nice new-looking uh, cars, some drivers that it's great to see back, a couple of late changes uh, to the uh, the lineup in the WEC. We've got the ELMS, always stunning, and a couple of pretty major changes there too in particular in LMP2 where we're seeing a couple of teams edging towards edging away from Leisure Energy towards Orica with United Autosports with their WEC Orica and the first of what will now become two Oricas in LMS. We're seeing the transition for United Autosport away from the Ligier JSP217 in LMS and to Orica with the 22 car this weekend will run as an Orica and by Spa both of them will Panis Barters as well, transitioning to a new chassis uh, for one of their two cars. And yeah, LMP2, I think, will become the next big question. What is going to happen? When is it going to happen? Two exciting looking grids. I think two interesting looking races in prospect, including the shortest ever official timed race for the WEC at four hours for Silverstone so we've remarkably got two four hours of Silverstone uh, one on Saturday for the LMS one on Sunday for the WC but you know aside from the professional pains that this one causes us a couple of exciting races in prospect mm, 100% it's going to be interesting to see what a WC race looks like in the slightly different format 
because there's a lot of drivers in that paddock who haven't raced on that format um, and some teams as well it's going to be slightly different strategies there and it's a good opportunity especially for teams like Porsche and teams like Team LNT who have got new cars here to not have to go straight out there and do quite a long race they can you know, test out what the cars are like in racing environments without having to do an extremely long race um, and yeah, I guess one of the bigger storylines in the week before we got, arrived at Silverstone is another change, a surprise change in the EOT, the equivalence of technology. If, if you want, shorthand is this is the way in which the performance is balanced between the hybrid totus, the absolute, the Gatling gun, if you like, in the knife fight um, that is LMP1, uh, and uh, those cars against the non-hybrid cars and in particular that means a further change in the weight it means an extra 14 kilos for the totas that puts them as if i remember correctly 99 kilos heavier than the turbocharged lnt genetas and i think it's 108 kilograms heavier than the rebellions the gibson mm-hmm. cars to which we've got this this time around that looks at the moment still to be a one-off by the way for the second car and they've appeared in this pretty remarkable uh, reverse black and white liveries uh, though i gather there's a further livery change due for the uh, for the full season car we'll wait and see um i think qualifying could be interesting could be very interesting we have the late change enforced upon uh Ginetta with Chris Dyson injured uh, last weekend at Road America uh, but Ollie Jarvis is going to be a great uh, substitute for him Chris will be here at Silverstone but damaged his wrist after a brake failure in his monstrous Trans Am Mustang uh, championship leader at that point and still very much in touch um, and he's been told he's got to keep his wrist immobile um, but uh, it'll be mobile enough to climb on a plane and uh, we'll see him at Silverstone for the race on Sunday. But Ollie Jarvis, champing at the bit, as he always is. You've got Team LNT Janetta looking to make a splash, qualifying as an opportunity to do that early doors. We'll wait and see what the race form is going to be like. The more proven package, of course, is the Rebellion. They've got a new lot driver squad as well. Uh, and then, of course, the Totas with Brennan Hartley joining uh, the team in a new look car. Um, you know some uh, some changes to the aero package there it's a brave new world um, and yes a lot of the questions are around why weren't those changes made earlier you might very well ask that question um, but one of the things I'm particularly pleased to report we've seen change and it came with this latest EOT is that for the first time that I can remember we've had an explanation from those that have made the change as to what change they've made and why and that is all about giving the baseline that they're going to be happier with for the uh, what do you call it? We'll call it success ballast. So success handicap. Success handicap, whatever yeah. they want to call it, is ballast. <laughs> it's great. So, you know, we're in a place where it's different enough from last season that we can honestly say we don't know yet. And that's going to be interesting to see whether or not, you know, Toto has still got a massive edge. And we expect them to have uh, an advantage, certainly in traffic, as they normally would do with the four-wheel drive system. But it's going to be interesting to see if that pans out in the shorter format race. They should not, if everybody runs reliably, and it's a big if, um, they should not be as far ahead for two reasons, principally. One is they're not going to lose, uh, be gaining time in the pit stops. Two is it's a four-hour race, not a six-hour race. And from there on in, it's a matter of what difference that weight, and it's quite a big weight difference now, makes uh, between the three different 
cars that we're going to have to play with and you know we'll wait and see wait and see what GTE looks like with the three factory teams now as opposed to the five we had last year we've got a stronger I think LMP2 team we've got a full house tyre battle in that and GTM looks great you know with, with um, new cars the Aston Martins joining of course uh, the new look Aston Martins um, it it remains to be seen how this is all going to hang together but I am looking forward to this one uh, it is always good to get new it is always good to get uh, things that are a little bit better and this is we hope the final transition season before we see something altogether different with Hypercar lots of stuff going on in the background not least from the likes of Brabham uh, but you know, lots of things I'm sure to come over the coming weeks and months we're going to crack on we're going to be slightly light by the way um, this week on the IMSA questions that's because I want to hang on uh, for next week for Marshall to get his teeth into one or two of the questions you've sent us um, we're going to crack on through the questions and you're going to be the inquisitor this time Stephen uh, we will of course chuck some of these questions to you as well but um, just by the physical setup we've got here in this um, odd hotel room uh, we're going to crack on through those questions so what do you want to serve up first you want to go with Wek Aslam Zacco Etc. Far yeah, away. Yeah, it's that sort of weekend, isn't it? Let's, it is. Let's start with the WC. And actually, the first question isn't the WC question. It is a Neil Ms question. Um, and this is from James Hewitt on Twitter. Who says, "Hey James, um, what's the reason for every Motors Porsche and the LMS GTE class uh, disappearing from the entry list of Silverstone? I don't recall reading any news articles or seeing any information about them missing the race." Well, you know that question. You know the answer to that one because I think you went down and had a chat with people in Porsche Land. Yeah. So. Um, this weekend, they haven't been able to make it purely because they haven't been able to fulfil uh, their full driver lineup. They haven't had a third driver uh, signed up for this one. But I understand that they'll be back for Spa. That's their plan. Uh, they're just sitting this one out. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, you know, there's concerns whenever you see a team drop off. GT Racing certainly isn't cheap. BP Motors have always looked good. Um, they've not had the early success. Uh, with a Porsche that perhaps they were looking for but um, you know it, it will be good to see them back LMS Racing in its pomp at the moment but it needs that stability and have sensed with the second of the density, the density Proton or the Proton competition cars falling off as a full season uh, presence that maybe that might have been in doubt but it's good to hear the EP Motors will carry through mm. the Project 1 is another omission from the LMS GT but I think um, that's principle. there's two yeah. things isn't it one is that Giudio Perfetti does not want to do double duty mm -hmm. why should he and two is I don't think they've yet got their third chassis mm. yeah it's yeah. just worth noting that um, second question comes from uh, Chris Alfby on Twitter he says with the repairing of Guy Smith and Chris Dyson uh, get well soon Chris could we see Dyson Racing uh, come back into sports car racing uh, in prototype racing again would love to see those two back in the top class in IMSA well I mean you know Chris has made no no kind of bones about it this is a big adventure for him it's a big challenge for him as well but his form in the other racing he's been doing some of the sprint cars and certainly in Transam has been very good of course there's the AER link uh, with, um, with uh, Chris being in you know partial ownership of that company uh, and also there's a third um, or fourth if you include uh, Ollie Jarvis and of course his link through Mazda uh, third, a fourth link with Peter Weston uh, the ex-Dyson Racing guy who's been uh, doing time at AR since the end of the Dyson Racing programme uh, will be race engineering um, the number six car so uh, there is a bit of a family feeling about it 
I'm sure that Chris would love to have done some racing programme back. I don't think he's in a massive rush to do that right now. They had a sniff around the potential for the Aston Martin deal that was kicking around, but I think the commercial terms of that um, were not suitable at that point for Dyson Racing but I think they're in a position where never say never and who knows getting back into an international racing scenario for Chris might just relight that fire be interesting asking that question a little later this season Hmm. next up a guy in a grumpy bear suit asks on Twitter is there any news to report regarding the availability of the WC streaming service in the US I don't mind paying for it but the FIA and ACO seem to have some aversion towards taking US dollars. There's also been some questions in the last few weeks when I've been on Graham about the streaming service overall, what it's going to look like. Yeah. don't know if you've got more insight into that. Unfortunately, I was kind of unable to give anyone uh, I can I can tell that. you as much as I know, which is I'm certainly part of it. So it'll be the same team for the WC streaming service as we've had uh, in recent years. It'll be Lou Beckett in the pit lane. It'll be Martin Haven as lead commentator, uh, supported by Alan McNish and yours truly in the booth. Uh, it'll be much the same as we've had previously Uh, I've not heard yet of any tweaks that are going to be made to that as far as the US um, availability is concerned that will be the Motor Trend On Demand service, the exclusivity um, arrangement they've got with that I think does mean the geo-blocking remains as it it was previously and we'll keep you posted with any changes that actually come come into into play with that one but for the moment it is what you had last season Uh, there is a press release out about which I'll try and put into pre-race notes for uh, DSC in the next couple of days paddock notes for DSC uh, about where the broadcasting can be seen in the UK and across Europe uh, Eurosports who will uh, traditionally take their own commentators um, and uh, the motorsport.com platform who will take the stream uh, commentators um, are they going to be the major players there Daniel Peters on Twitter asks the next question. He says, what is your opinion on the ever-increasing number of Orica chassis at the expense of Ligier, Delara, Riley and LP2 in the WC? In theory, it could make the racing closer at the expense of Variety of uh, chassis, which was not the idea of the current regulations. No, it wasn't. And Variety, you know, absolutely is the spice of this and, and should remain that way. I think there's been a problem, and it would be an interesting question to actually ask up and down the pit lane, particularly with our friends at Michelin and our friends at Goodyear and Dunlop, as to whether or not you know the tie wars had a part to play here whether or not actually um you know if you're going testing with development tires uh, year on year where do you go well you go to the teams that have been winning races and for the most part they've been orica teams i think what we may have ended up with are um you know increasingly tires that suit the orica perhaps better than they do the delara and the ligier so it'll be interesting to find out whether or not that's that's principally supposition but uh, I'm beginning to hear people confirming that, that may well be the case that would be an interesting one to see whether or not uh, our tyre wielding friends will confirm that and indeed some of the, the teams it is a source of regret you know we do like the variety and it's a particular source of regret, regret to see that happening mid-season for them, some of these teams um, I think it's now time for the, the rule makers to act we've seen one round of uh, the Jokers um, it cannot be a good thing uh, to get, we're not close yet to the point where we've got the next round of licenses to be offered. We've already got a further transition that's going to have to happen with hypercar, with the performance of the LMP2 is realistically having to be reeled in quite substantially. That potentially offers an opportunity for a rebalancing moment. 
um, and then you've got the next licensing side. The problem is that's still some way away. Mm. And what we're seeing already is Delara and Ligier's customer base beginning to sh- look a bit crumbly at the edges, a bit more than crumbly at the edges when you're losing you know, top teams like United from Ligier and with the number of Delaras having fallen off a cliff, really. Uh, it's time, I think, for them to think again here. Um, you've got uh, manufacturers that have shown loyalty to a set of rules. They, re- they require a bit of support here. And I'm not really at home to Orica kind of screaming and moaning and shouting about it. They're more than dominant in this marketplace. They can afford a bit of competition. Mm. There's, an, there's another debate to be had as to what LMP2 looks like in the next couple of years, because the trouble is now is that we don't really know what the changes no. are going to look like. And that's not just us. That's manufacturers, that's teams, that's Nobody drivers. Does. Nobody has an answer. No. And I think, you know, what I'd like to see as well is, and it is tricky while we're in these growing pains for hypercar, but, you know, I think that the step change that needs to come with the ACO in sporting terms and in terms of regulations is they've got to learn to actually deal publicly with more than one problem at a time. And that's that's not been very apparent. Uh, there may well be discussions in the background about what the future uh, shape and the future um, performance for LMP2 can and should be. I'd like to hear a little bit more public discussion about that one. You know, the, the, if you're looking to build a product, if you're looking to take an audience with you, then you need to involve them in, if not the solutions, certainly in, as, in terms of the direction of your own discussions. That's my view. Mm. Another question from Daniel now. He says, do the LMP1 cars have to field three drivers in a four-hour race, or can they just field two drivers, as is the case in GTE Pro? With costs being a major factor at present in all racing, would it not make sense to have two drivers in four six-hour races? Some drivers do three hours plus stints at the moment. The answer is, I can tell you that some teams have considered running three drivers and have opted not... Uh, two drivers, rather, and have opted not to. Uh, but having named three drivers, they've got to run them. So if you've actually nominated drivers... Um, at the point at which that's accepted, that what those drivers have got to run, uh, I think it's a minimum of 40 minutes from memory in a four-hour race. Uh, and if they don't, then penalties can be accrued, up to and including exclusion of the team. So uh, the straight answer is once they've opted to go with those three drivers, and that can be for performance reasons, it can be for... Um, reasons of performance of the car it can be reasons of performance of the driver there can be all sorts of reasons why in the case of someone a team like LNT for instance with the Ginetta don't count out the fact that if you've got drivers that you want a good look at that you might be thinking about using for the remainder of the season every single moment in that car is going to be valuable so actually it makes perfect sense to make sure that you you have the opportunity to have data on as many drivers as possible if you're trying to mould something together so far remember uh, LNC Ginetta have only named these drivers as being for Silverstone and a lot of that will be linked to their performance over the four hours John Foreman on Twitter says is the, is the upcoming WC season called a super season I would no. like to think last year was super as it lasted a year and a half um, also what would happen if Marshall Graham and Stephen did an episode together it would be I think a black hole would appear and uh, we'd all be sucked into it and that would be the end of that you'd be left li- uh, listening to other uh, frankly uh, less less really awesome podcast and that would be very sad for everybody mm. uh, it's not called the super season the, the, the change I think you're going to find is I'm quite pleased about this one although when I first saw it it kind of it, it jarred a little bit is 
I keep having to remind myself what this year is and what next year is. So it's 2019-2020, but the decision has been made that it's going to start from this point being called Season 8. So Season 8, it's the eighth year of the, uh, the FI8 season. So mm, see, there you that's go. That's the bomb. <laughs> um, eighth season of the FIWC, so Season 9, Season 10, etc. But no, it's not a super season. You're absolutely right. The reason it was called the super season is because it was more than a year long. Um, this is another John this is John Richter on Twitter says will we see a Ford GT in privateer hands take part in an IMSA or WC race in 2020 Graham I really enjoyed your Rattel interview Uh, you know what about the Rattel interview um, I've interviewed Stefan before but it's the first time I've had Stefan on tape for a full hour that was during the Suzuka 10 hours so you know for listening Stefan thank you very much for being as generous with your time as you were and a really open forum from Stefan um, you know, it's a format that I'm going to be showing to other major players uh, in management positions in motorsport and I think that's a format that really works uh, we asked some of the more searching questions and I was delighted with the answers he gave me I didn't agree with all of them but I was delighted that he actually gave me the answers to them and it was a, I, a, one of the interviews I've enjoyed most frankly over the last two or three months uh, with Stefan I'm pleased to say that um, I've completely forgotten the question uh, the first part of it was about the Ford GTs running right. in private hands in IMSA or WC well the only car we know that's in private hands of course is Ben Keating's car Ben has committed to the full WEC with Project One that means that we won't be seeing that car in the WEC this season might we see it in an IMSA race we might um, you know we'll wait and see what's, uh, what Ben makes his decision the, the, I think the key to it as he said before is it's effectively it's I mean, he would need to run that car and the costs of running it I hope we do the cars are awesome am I confident we will no and by the way the other thing I would say here is the fact that, that Ben has joined Project 1 means it's unlikely we'll see him running that car at Le Mans next year unless he attempts to get a separate invitation for himself having earned an invitation um, with the Project One Porsche so I think at the moment it's looking less like than ever that we'll actually see that car um, in the WEC and at Le Mans Mark Clarkson on Facebook says what are your expectations for Aston Martin this season both in GT Pro and GTM we know the Astons have good single lap pace but they've struggled to hang on to that during races um, with the AMs getting the upgrade how do we think they will fare uh, I think it's a great question. The, the I think the, the the issue with senior, and you've, you've described it perfectly, Mark, is performance tailing off, and that appears to be kind of tyre related. I'm I'm be honest with you, I'm not absolutely convinced about the wailing and gnashing of teeth that came on about kind of BOP. It wasn't a huge change for the team, and they seem to tail off rather more than I would have expected them to at Le Mans. But um, could it be, as we've seen before? The fact that what you've actually got is, in this instance, a Michelin tyre that's been developed more for the teams that probably have paid for that development. Um, might be Porsche, might be uh, Ferrari. I've certainly seen both those teams out testing and testing extensively. It might be that, again, we've gone into that position where that tyre suits the mid-engine car better than it does the front-engine car. Uh, it wouldn't be the first time. That was one of the factors that led to the Dunlop year that brought the title to Aston Martin Racing. So it'd be interesting to see what we actually see this time from them. They have been out and, and testing. We've not really heard much from them about what they've done, about addressing those concerns about the, the stint-long performance. 
but let's wait and see what actually comes out. Do I expect this to be anything uh, less engaging than it was last year? The answer is no, I don't. You know, we've lost Ford, and Ford were consistently front runners in the WEC. We've lost BMW, who weren't. So I don't want to be kind of you know snotty about BMW's program, but I have to say, and it's not the first time I've said it. You know, there's there's a word overwhelming, and there's a word underwhelming. There isn't a word that's whelming, but that was what it was. Hmm. <laughs> As for Anne, I think the interesting thing here for um, for the guys like Paul Dallana and Sadio is getting... There are no guys like Paul Dallana. There, there aren't. No. There aren't. Um, Paul remember... Dallana, by the way, is the only Canadian man that a bear dares attack. <laughs> but the... When I spoke to, I think it was Johnny Adam, when they were first uh, developing the car, going through the testing cycle before it first raced. When um, you say you think it was Johnny Adam, does that mean you're not sure whether or not you spoke I, to Johnny Adam? I definitely Adam? spoke to Johnny Adam. Right. And I, I believe it was him who told me uh, that the big changes uh, for him was drivability of the car, the cockpit, all the little bells and whistles that don't necessarily... It's got bells and whistles. Apparently it's got bells and whistles. Uh, that's going to have a bigger effect on AM drivers, isn't it, than pros? Because uh, you've got Paul Dallana and, and Sally coming from cars that were quite old, really, by the time they were retired off. It's going to be a big step for them, but yep. we could see a, a you know a big leap in, in what they're able to do over longer stints, longer periods of time, and longer races if it, the car's more comfortable to drive and easier to and more consistent. Well, here's the other point about that car. So remember the the car that 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 car's been developed both as a GTE car and as a GT3 car. As a GT3 car, absolutely that car has been developed um, to be a more customer-friendly car, which means that you're designing that car and the drivability of that car for a customer racer, which tends to be a gentleman. Um, so it's going to be interesting to, sit, to hear from Paul, to hear from Sally, whether or not that's had benefits for them as they move forward, because we haven't seen that car race uh, with amateurs aboard uh, as a GTE car yet. Mark Clarkson on Facebook, uh, so this is his second question, he says... How cool is the Janetta fan engagement? Interacting directly with fans via Facebook, Twitter and Reddit and offering garage tools is a great way to get people on board. Hashtag me personally, I was already on board as an average Yorkshire tea drinker. Uh, but do you think this could kickstart other teams to go to these efforts? I absolutely hope so. And I'll, I'll put my hand up and say yes, this is something I've been involved with, uh, talking to Team LNT. In fact, I'll tell you right now, I made the calls to the guys who are going to be coming to the garage doors tomorrow, as we record this, uh, and on Saturday. And there's some very, very happy people coming along. And we'll repeat that um, with... Uh, what's going to be happening through the season I expect we're going to get fewer people we've got to Shanghai and we get to Fuji but I, I think we'll get more of the smattering uh, and my guess is there'll be a big demand for it when we get out to Sebring for instance but look I think anything fan facing is, is a definite step forward it's always been something that's featured for me as part of the appeal for sports car racing back in the heyday of the American Le Mans series with their For the Fans moniker it means something and I think that's valued by the teams I think we've gone through a period particularly when we had the three factory hybrid teams when too many literal walls were going up I didn't like it I've never liked it um, too many literal walls were going up I think we've taken a big step back at Le Mans in the paddock it, you know, it looks lovely but it's an absolute pain in the arse to work with when you know, almost everybody's got a plastic policeman you know, behind a tensor barrier glaring at you whether or not you're entitled to be there it's you know it's not what's required um and unfortunately that is the cost of 
the fact that once in a while the uh, the privilege of getting into the paddock is abused by people who can frankly nick things. We've seen all sorts of things uh, go missing down through the years, uh, and unfortunately that is going to be part of it. But part of it is, let's be blunt, a bit of marketing bullshit. And, mm. and for me, that's taken something away that was pretty special there. This is a small measure, but I think if we see what we've already seen from um, the response to, the, 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 let's face it, very small initiatives that have been made here by Team LNT. I had a long chat with, with Lawrence Tomlinson about it. He said, it's absolutely amazing how much goodwill that, that, that one little thing has actually generated. The fact that we will see on the rear of the, um, uh, the two genetics through the season logos from some of the fan-facing resources on Facebook and Reddit. You know, they're there because they are a group of people, tens of thousands of people, who are supporting that championship. And I want to see more of that. I want to see more of that from the championship. I want to see more of that from the teams. And I've already heard from at least one more team operating in a different championship that they'd like to do something similar. So, fingers crossed, we will see more of that actually happening. Because there is actually literally no downside. Well, it should be noted here as, as well, shouldn't it, that it's not just Team LNT that were really on board with this idea. The uh, championship is as well. Oh yeah, championship. WC were really on board with getting well, getting this uh, getting this going. Uh, and, and you know, and allowing some of the access that's actually going to be required to make it it, it happen. So let's wait and see. It's early days. Um, Team LNT have got a very, very, very steep mountain to climb this year, and they're about to find out how steep. Going quickly in testing is one thing. Going quickly in qualifying is another thing. Going quickly over 4, 6, 8, 12, 24 hours is another thing altogether. It's a good car. Let's see if it's a great car. Third question from Mark. He wants uh, our More opinions. More from Mark? Yeah, I know. Greedy. Snuck in three questions. Greedy. He says, uh, he's basically asking how close we think the privateers can get to the Toyotas in the first race of the season I, you know the best thing about this I have absolutely no idea whatsoever um, and that's that's really good I mean look make no mistake um, publicly and privately I was hugely critical of the, the the artificial gap that was allowed last year I think that took away from the racing I think it cost us the SMP racing uh, effort at the end of that season I think people are regretting that now um, I hope what we're going to see is cars remarkably close in qualifying. It remains to be seen what happens in the race. And that's not just to do with equivalent technology. It's to do with the way in which that power, that performance is delivered. And, you know, I think we could get to the stage where actually, even if Toyota were penalised to the point, and bear in mind, it, if Toyota come and win... It's going to be worse than the next time because there's going to be more weight. It may be that throughout the season, that's when we really start to see this it come to It could take two or three races. It could. It? it could see. We could see that. But um, even if Toyota get to the stage where, in pure performance, the potential individual pure lap time falls below what Rebellion and what Team LNT can actually produce, the way in which that performance is delivered could actually end up with this being quite exciting. You could actually see get to the stage where. You know, a rebellion or a genetic could be quicker on an individual lap, but when you get into traffic, that that's when the Toyota's ability to punch through it—I um, don't mean literally, but I mean punch away from it—could actually uh, send the balance in the opposite direction. We don't know yet. I hope that's what we're going to see. Kind of an extension of that question <coughs> comes Excuse from uh, Kiwi Tajong on Facebook, who's asking specifically about the weight on the Toyota, and I think 
what would be good here is to ask you off the back of this question whether you think adding weight is the best way to balance this because there are obviously plenty of ways that you can go about trying to balance hybrid and non-hybrid cars. Is weight the answer, do you think? The, the, the problem with uh, with balancing hybrid cars is the way in which the package has been designed. And it's to do with, you know, weight is problematic for the hybrids. Bear in mind that, you know, uh, the, the way in which the, the hybrid energy is harvested is through the energy through braking, for instance. And that means that those braking systems operate on a bit of a knife edge. Remember what happened in 2015 with the Nissans, where they didn't have the hybrid system, but they had a braking system designed to operate with the hybrid. What happened? No hybrid system, the brakes overheat constantly and dramatically. Uh, So you've got to be kind of quite careful with what you do. It's the same with the aero. The, uh, The whole concept of that Toyota is that you save energy by lifting and coasting. If you mess too much with the aero, it won't coast. It won't coast in the way that it's supposed to. So what you've got is an incredibly efficient aerodynamic package that is designed to allow the car to accelerate, to punch out really quickly, get to its peak speed really quickly, and then keep as much of that speed as possible even with the foot off the gas. And, you know, we've seen that time and time again where the Totas and previously the Audis and the Porsches will punch away from traffic like nothing else on earth. Um, And then all of a sudden, as you're getting further down the main straight at, let's say, Shanghai, let's say Fuji, that the other traffic is able to actually start to catch it, in some, t- in some cases even past those cars. So it's going to be a tricky one. Weight, I think, it's a blunt instrument, but actually it's an easy one to understand. And that's what I want to see more of, by the way. I want to see more that is done in these instances that is easier to explain and to understand. Mm. We've got an Asian Le Mans series-themed question here from Buddy Campbell on Facebook. It says, am I the only one who doesn't get everyone's obsession with the Bend uh, Motorsport Park in Australia? It reminds me a lot of Miller Motorsport Park in Utah. Just some turns in a field but no character. Is it, it's like a Tilka drone, but Herman Tilka didn't design it. Uh, well, number one, not seen it yet. So all I've seen is pictures of it. Um, I know people have been to see it. I know the Asian Le Mans series management were there last week for the supercars round. Um, you know, what I'm hearing is some pretty good reports about the quality of the of the venue about the quality of the track about the quality of the environment look we'll we'll call it as we see it i think the only reason bear in mind no international race has raced on the full circuit yet Mm. we have seen some of the other formats of the circuit actually used but we've not seen for anything at any kind of level whatsoever the full 7.7 kilometer uh, track in use we will call it as we see it i will see that track for the very first time in january i'm going to go out there a day or so early to get a good opportunity to um to look at it you know uh, absolutely closely while i do a track walk in 42 degrees you've got to be out of your mind but uh, i'm hoping that we can get one of our safety car drivers and one of a couple of the uh, the pro drivers to take us for a, a look around it hopefully with a cooling drink online um but it i'm looking forward to seeing it why because it's new, because it's different, because it's something we've not been to before. And I'd say just by the way this, and it's not by any way a criticism of the opinion being offered there. I have no criticism of that opinion. If you've seen it, then fine, you're entitled to your opinion about it. But Stephen, you've been doing this with me now, with Daily Sports Car and with Racer, for some time with the international racing scene, particularly the WEC. Isn't it nice when we go somewhere different? It certainly is. It 
we we do so many of the same journeys over and over again and sometimes it's to the most incredible places like yeah. a place like Spa for instance which we've mentioned once started before that yeah. we seem to almost live at I would rather <laughs> kill myself <laughs> right now than go to Spa tomorrow yeah now, not because I don't like Spa Spa's a great uh, circuit but it's three of the most boring hours from the tunnel to Spa that that is like creeping death at 80 miles an hour what people want to see out of the bend um is the fact that it's long it's a challenging circuit it's a circuit that nobody's properly raced on yet like you say all the drivers and teams that are going to be there at that Asia Le Mans series event are going to lap up the opportunity to try something completely different all be in the same boat could throw up a really interesting result because yeah, I'm, it's, I'm hearing it's not some... like it, there's not even going to be much in the way of sim data for that oh, circuit no. or anything no, no, absolutely. so preparation is literally just practice and is, well I'm sure there might be a test day or something beforehand is there do they, did they do it in Asia Le Mans series we do year? have a, day, a yeah. test day so yes. they'll just have to run as much as they can yeah. and that's something that Engineers, drivers, everyone relishes. I think you'll, you'll, uh, it'll be going to be interesting to see what happens with the season entry. It's going to be interesting to see what happens for the entries for that race, almost as a standalone as to what support it gets from the Aussie racing community. Um, you know, we're beginning to hear what the, what the shape of the grid for the whole season looks like. It might be that's looking quite exciting at the moment. Um, you know, there's been some very good news. There's been some slightly more average news from one or two other teams but I think we can have a great grid of prototypes I think we can have a reasonable grid of GTs from what I know in the background um, you know I think we're going to have a goodly number probably the best number we've had for a full season in the Asia Le Mans series fabulous if things come together mm. but you know the world is a rapidly changing place but look um, yeah I hear what you say let's judge it on its merits once people have raced it Shall we go to Henaral? Let's do uh, that next. Are we going to do some... Should we do some IMSA? You want to do IMSA? Let's do a couple of IMSA. Any, okay. Let's, let's see if they've got any uh, IMSA, IMSA questions that uh, won't get us a pounding from Marshall for answering when he wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one... I think there's one on Youngcast Racing. You could certainly answer that one. Yeah. Because I know you, you've been speaking to people in DPI land uh, over the last couple of weeks for a couple of pieces. And by the way, a couple more pieces to come on DPI, mm. on DSC... Um, which I know Marshall's working for some stuff around on some stuff around uh, 2022 and beyond on DPI as well. Yeah, so we'll start with that one as you mentioned that one. That's from Mitch Mortensen on Facebook. Says, do we have any updates d- updates on Uncos's DPI program? I didn't see them at Road America. I was wondering how they're dealing with the wreck chassis and getting back into the series. I spoke to Ricardo Uncos um, specifically this week uh, for the piece that I wrote on Daily Sports Car the other day. Um, there's a bit of uncertainty around that program. Uh, he's working extremely hard to make sure that, that comes back next year. But he had a really honest and frank conversation with me for probably about half an hour, 45 minutes, about the challenges he's faced this year. Um, it's fair to say he's done a lot of learning because this is very different from what he's done in you know, Indy Lights and some of the stuff he's done in single-seaters out in America. There were a lot of problems that he was faced with, uh, particularly commercially, uh, he didn't expect and that sort of surrounds things like trying to get drivers on board signing them for a full season trying to get sponsors on board for a new championship it's not easy and it's uh, it's not easy if you're in a championship that you're new to uh, that you're not necessarily out there fighting for wins immediately it's difficult to get any sort of momentum um, so right now uh, we don't know whether they'll be back beyond Petit Le Mans he's committed certainly to Petit Le Mans uh, they're currently talking about getting a third driver on board in the next week or two. Uh, that's their, their biggest face, uh, challenge that they're facing right now is making sure they can field that car for the full um, race at Red Atlanta. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's it, it's kind of sad in a way because this is a guy who's really passionate, absolutely, and really you know has a fantastic group of guys behind that program who are all um, should we say a, a little bit um, not demotivated, but they've they're a bit sort of worn down from the you know the challenges they've faced this season. They've written off the chassis, uh, they haven't had the results they thought they were going to get. They've had to change drivers throughout the season. And which is that, which is always a really tough part of this, it, you know. If you're it's, in a position, under, it's underestimated how oh, yeah. in play these drivers are. Absolutely, I mean, you know, the, the I think the reality here is if you've not got that consistency of data, if you've not got that consistency of response, consistency of performance, that can be a real challenge. Look, you know, I've said before on on the weekend sports cars that the contribution to the overall international scene of these professional race teams is massively underrated I think by an awful lot of race organisers by the way I mean that as opposed to a factory backed team and you know it would be a big blow I think if a team like Youngcast weren't able to find a package to take it forward we wish them well Mm, certainly do Dan Flies up next on Twitter says how much of the at the track team for um, cause factory Porsche program are factory Porsche personnel are the engines built in Europe and delivered ready to, uh, ready to install can you share anything on how these type of factory contracts work right um, every contract differs the answer generally speaking for um, the Porsche uh, factory programs is look every Porsche factory uh, GTE car is built um, at Porsche Motorsport, all the engines are built at Porsche Motorsport. The, uh, the the critical functions of those cars will be monitored and managed by Porsche technicians and engineers. But there will be the, the majority of the numbers, if you like, involved in running those cars will be the core guys. It'll be the core automotive uh, guys uh, with a more than a smattering of Porsche professionals in there managing the important functions of those cars. Uh, Mark. Uh Cardella on Twitter says with the WC not providing an opportunity for DPI to race at Le Mans why doesn't IMSA drop the I for version 2.0 and just go back to calling them uh, back to calling them Daytona prototypes I th- my understanding was the I was always on the basis that were based on P2 chassis which is an international global chassis so I think that's why they were called DPI in the first place honestly it's up to IMSA what they call them Mm. Um, you know the, the the honest answer here is it's been a successful formula to them for them to this point. It's got brand recognition. Sort of. Why would you change? Mm. Uh, John Daniels on Facebook says, "What's the status of the Wick, uh, the Rick Ware Racing Program in LMP2? Supposedly they're going to be entering uh, entering some cars in in IMSA." Um, I have a bit of information about the Rick Ware program, which we will be featuring on Daily Sports Car probably early next week. Uh, but uh, the answer is that is live. Uh, I'm aware of uh, parts of the proposed package uh, with the uh, IMSA entry potentially for Rick Ware Racing in 2020 in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Uh, so, yes, it's a thing. Exactly how that's going to look. Uh, I think it's not yet fully formed. Uh, they've also announced, of course, their LMP2 AM program in the Asia Le Mans series. That one is more fully formed with a couple of uh, uh, JSP2 uh, Ligiers and the involvement of, um, of Antonio Ferrari's uh, Euro International squad. Uh, but I hope we can nail down a bit more detail and then share some of that with our readers and hopefully the readers of uh, racer.com as well in the coming days. Brandon Bird on Facebook says, "Could another manufacturer, perhaps who's looking at DPI 2.0, buy the um, 
Nissan DPI's from Core and run them as their own, or is that a homologated package only as a Nissan? Uh, the answer is they'd have to rework them, and, and for DPI it requires, from memory, approval from IMSA. So the um, the look of the car would have to have some brand recognition uh, for whatever uh, brand it is, and of course you're not going to be able to run an Nissan engine in the rear of a car that you're calling something other than a Nissan. It's mm. got to have a manufacturer uh, moniker attached to it, and it's got to have Starling cues uh, that are approved by IMSA to do so. So if, for the sake of arguing for whatever reason you might want to run it as, I don't know, Alicia Alfa Romeo, it needs to have uh, an engine that is badged as an Alfa Romeo, uh, and it needs to have styling cues on that car that are specifically Alfa. I, I recall the Nissan original design was turned down, and that they were told to go away and come back with something that looked a bit more like a Nissan, uh, when the original program was put together by uh, ESM. Mm. Another question from Brandon on Facebook says, given the healthy turnout of the IMSA Rolex reunion a few weeks ago, is there any hope of seeing historic IMSA cars running or even just doing duro laps during a standard race weekend? Well, they do at Rolex, don't they, the Rolex 24? Uh, they do the 24 minutes of uh, Daytona, which is organised by Tim Pendergast and his uh, fabulous team. And they get some serious cars. Oh, I get some serious cars. I mean, they lay, lay them out in the paddock. It's awesome. But for me... I think historic cars at a contemporary race meeting are always a good thing. You know, you, we had the, once this season with the uh, Monza, with the Masters Insurance Legends, and, you know, generally speaking, for you and I, uh, when there's a sport race on, that's the point at which we either go and do some work uh, or whatever, but that, uh, no work got done when those cars were on track. <laughs> we're too busy actually just licking the windows. Um, so it, it, the, the sights, the sounds, the smells... Uh, that, but that's enough about the inside of the DSC fun bus. Um, it's they're fabulous cars, and it's uh, it's great to see them out there. And, and yes, I think that would be a great part of the show, certainly for the bigger races for IMSA. The problem, and it's a nice problem to have for IMSA, is they've got such a packed program. I mean, there is. Mm. I, I think there are few packages on earth as impressive as what IMSA actually roll out in terms of their sanctioned series. And the, obviously there's a rolling programme where you've got kind of said, Super Trofeo, you've got the Porsche One Make series, you've got uh, Pilot Challenge, you've got the Prototype Challenge. Um, it, it's it's great to see that. Um, I'd like to see something historic out there because I just think their, their heritage is fantastic. Uh, whether or not it's the GTPs, the GTUs, the GT... I mean, they've got so many fabulous cars out there and owners that I think would love to have people come and see them, mm-hmm. hear them in particular, you know, watch them, and uh, it would be good to see some form of spin-off, if you like, of the Endurance Legends format uh, making its way stateside. There is a good community, isn't there, of... Um you know, guys who run and race historic historic sports cars because the HSR uh, yeah, yeah. events get some really well, you know, really good entries like right. Tim Brandegast and uh, Joe Bradley regularly commentating on some fabulous events that sadly don't attract very big crowds um, you know I think that, that there's there's room for that scene to grow it's a fast growing scene in Europe uh, it'd be interesting to see what could be done by IMSA if they can see that the opportunities that that might present them. Let's go to Heral. Let's do Heral. And there's plenty of questions here about Good. Um, Suzuka. Uh, lots of questions about your interview with Stefan Rattel in particular before we get into that I think it'd be good in, in light of what we did last weekend with uh, with Marshall 
uh, talking about his experience at the Rotary Union. Give us a little bit of an insight into what what Suzuka was like for you. I know it's your first time at the circuit. What did you mm-hmm. think of the event, the race? Um, Full of Japanese people, which has really? surprised me. It's um, absolutely loads of Japanese people there. Uh, but no, first time at Suzuka for me. So something like tenth time in Japan, but always been a Fuji with either uh, WC or Asian Le Mans, or on one occasion both. Uh, but um, the facility is magnificent. There's no doubt about that. As you often find when you go to an international racetrack for the first time, you find that the elevation of the circuit is a surprise. And, and Suzuka was a big surprise. Lots of elevation involved in that that circuit. Um, you know, some very familiar parts of it. The, the, the Ferris wheel, for instance, very familiar. A good crowd, although I think they were probably disappointed with the final crowd numbers there. I don't think it was quite what they expected. Is that because of the weather? Was it, well, it was, really bad it was blisteringly hot for the first three days I was there. We had one day um, where track action was almost washed out uh, with just torrential rain and then back to pretty warm temperatures for race day. Uh, but a good event, I think, you know, as that settles in, it's, a, it's an event, of course, with a proud history as a thousand kilometer race now re-establishing itself as a 10 hour race um, I think it will grow I think it, it needs to find uh, its own place in what is a pretty packed um, you know Japanese domestic scene and uh, Japanese kind of lineup of international races but it strikes me as being a perfectly worthy addition to the Intercontinental GT Challenge alongside Bathurst of course Spa um, and then the problem that is the North American side of things which will become uh, the race in Indianapolis next year and then the one that we're hoping to get you on the the big silver bus with wings um, to Canal Army uh, the nine hours for that in November Mm. So let's kick off with some questions now that centre around that we'll start off with Ed Horas Facebook he says Graham about the Stefan Rattel interview I have to admire his clearly stated vision but when he talked about the production minimums of GT3 uh, did, he, did he seem aware that only one uh, that, sorry that one of the companies liked to have trouble um, in that area was the host for the weekend Honda is the NSX going to make the cut and if it doesn't does the Suzuka IGTC race continue without it I think the, the Honda looks to me to be close to being fine I mean but the, 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 the what we're talking about here is that homologation in GT3 requires 20 cars within two years to be produced and I believe sold as well I think that's what the intention is so unless someone does the kind of Porsche 917 build the 20 and stack them up uh, there's no business case to do that that you have to build and sell those those cars I don't think Honda are a million miles away from that they're well into double figures and they've got a little wee while yet uh, to, to nail down those cells I think they're going to be okay the ones I'm more worried about and bearing in mind it is the current homologation not every car you built since you called it that Nissan looked to be a little bit on the edge um, there's not there's not huge numbers we had four Nissan GTRs competing in the Suzuka 10 hours but only two to the current specification and those two were two of four that KCMG have fielded this year one of which was destroyed in the dreadful accident that we saw uh, at the Nürburgring Green 24 hours but I think they are if they're at double figures they're only just um, the, the two that I think are in trouble um, are Lexus uh, which I, I think are well into it's, it's, it's single figure certainly there's not huge numbers of those cars uh, breaking through and Callaway 
uh, with the Corvette that again we had a single car there but there's tiny numbers there too so they may well be the cars that there's trouble getting to the 20 cars within two years of the current homologation uh, I think Bentley are fine McLaren are obviously towards the end, the end of their first year but we know they're at something like 13 and I'm absolutely aware of at least one more high profile customer to come for those cars so I think they look like they'll be fine for, for the 20 uh, we'll wait and see but uh, the, the, the two that at the moment I have my eye on as mainstream manufacturers are Nissan and uh, Lexus plus Callaway I think are in trouble as an homologated GT3 car whether or not they get the opportunity to continue with something like Adec GT Masters or elsewhere is a different matter but as an FIA homologated car they're simply not selling enough well I was going to say is it clear yet what happens if uh, a manufacturer doesn't meet those you lose your obligation as GT3 so does that mean any existing com- uh, customers can't run those cars from that point onwards it's a or good can question. you run those cars out uh, it's a all. good question I suspect the answer is they might well be in trouble there might well be a grandfathering period for those cars but you might well be in trouble mm. Daniel O'Donnell is uh, on with the next question on Twitter he says I enjoyed your Stefan Rateau interview Graham do you have uh, you on the podcast see SRO introducing a GT4 endurance championship three-hour races on the same weekend as the current endurance series would be great, in my opinion. Uh, we'll wait and see. I mean, it's a maturing marketplace. Remember, generally speaking, there's two reasons why you go for GT4. One is budget, the other one is experience. Um, we've got GT4 cars, of course, competing in long-distance endurance in things like 24H series and VLN, uh, where they're going over those. Kind of at the moment, I think uh, SRO are pretty happy with what they've got in terms of principally sprint championships for them but you do have GT4 cars in two and three hour races for instance in British GT Um, so it'll be interesting to see how things actually pan out uh, particularly as the numbers uh, you know continue to grow and I think uh, GT4 will continue to grow very strong numbers for GT4 not all of which are actually racing many of which are actually being used as track day weapons Mm -hmm. I think we're all in agreement, aren't we, Graham, that what SRO needs is more championships in more places. I think we're, we're sadly lacking in the. I think we. I, I double. We in fact, we, a part of the interview was uh, talked to Stefan about actually something I thoroughly admire him for, which is his entire world challenge, which obviously covers Asia, Europe, North America, plus Blompen Endurance, plus the IGTC, plus everything else. Not one clash on his calendar with the principal events he's actually got I think it's 26 weekends and no clashes across them so you've got to admire him for that the fact that it clashes with other things is a different matter but yes you're absolutely right the point you're making is that we've seen this rapid expansion in the number of championships and therefore the number of events so there's no shortage of places where people can race a GT4 or GT3 car mm. Ryan Terpstra uh, hey, on Ryan. Twitter says uh, Graham appreciate the interview with Stefan Mattel it was an interesting perspective that said we all agree the IGTC race at Indianapolis won't work where and when me pers- hashtag me personally will the IndyCar finale weekend uh, sorry this doesn't make sense to me where and when me personally IndyCar finale weekend um, at Watkins Glen early October I think he means that, that might be a, be a good, better a good, sorry, good solution. It, they might done, be a bit missing. Of this look, if, the, if, if Stefan is absolutely aware that if he wants the Intercontinental GT Challenge to keep its moniker, uh, that he's got to find a solution. He hopes in North America or the Americas. Um, 
I GTC we had we had an on and off the record conversation about Indianapolis. I've asked him on the record about crowd numbers and about the sustainability. It may well be that actually that is a race that they are prepared to basically say, um, as long as he's got the numbers on track, it's commercially viable. If he can attract, as they did at Suzuka, the business-to-business marketplace, in other words, that the manufacturers can invite people to their hospitality for whatever activation they might want to do. We had cars launched at Suzuka in the Japanese market by uh, Audi, I believe, by AMG as well. Then it may not need a crowd to be a commercially sustainable operation. The key to it is that he has his intercontinental customers, the manufacturer teams, the manufacturer customer racing teams, coming back for more. It doesn't necessarily need 40,000 people in the grandstand. Hmm. Uh, got a couple of questions now uh, regarding the commentary team at the Suzuki Day Now. Okay. One from Right Turn Lover, one from Douglas Holzman. Um, Is it sharply critical? Yes. <laughs> yes, is the answer. Um, yeah, so Right Turn Lover says, What mm, do you mm, think uh, mm, Suzuka 10-hour mm, mm, commentary? Right. Um, what's the other question? The other question is, mm, what do you... No, it says, uh, Graham uh, and Marshall, uh, commentary is difficult, but the addition of Sam uh, Collins as a Suzuka 10-hour race helped the broadcast, but with the rest of the group, I found it challenging to listen to. I say we should get a change.org um, going for both of you to do the commentary with Sam for next year's race. What do you think? Right, first things first, it's really important to say this. I haven't heard it because, of course, I was there and it's geo-plugged in Japan, so we didn't have the opportunity to listen to it. I have, however, had reaction by email, by message, and indeed by conversation with a number of people, including one of the race organisers. And it is fair to say that there was a degree of, uh, how can I put this, being rather less than impressed with the quality of what was being dealt out. It's not the first time, of course. Uh, the first year, I think it rather caught the race organisers uh, flat-footed and they provided something that, frankly, was just not fit for purpose. Mm. I can only say this. Number one, commentary is difficult. Um, it is It is not a simple matter to talk knowledgeably and in an intending fashion for three, four, six, eight, eleven or twelve hours in the case of uh, a broadcast for the Suzuka 10 hours. It's certainly not easy to do that with a new team of people that you've not worked before no. at an event you've never worked at before. Indeed. However, there is little or no defence for coming along and not being prepared. Um, that you know The uh, entry list for that race was known weeks before um, and you've got to come in and know who it is that's competing and know the background and know the figures and know the rule book and know what the opportunities are for success or failure Uh, you've got to understand the BOP you've got to understand the fact that you've got different classes you've got to understand that you've got uh, different teams with different agendas It, it seems to me from what was actually being relayed back from numerous people, many of whom's position I respect, that that was not the case. And all I'd say there is the individuals concerned, they need to look at their own performance. I'm not going to offer criticism because I haven't heard it. But if it's what I've been told that it was, I'd just say this. Guys, you need to go and look at what you did, what you didn't do, where that went right, where that went wrong, and be honest with yourselves and everybody else and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because if you're looking to build an international event, it needs everything to be right. Mm. And if the TV commentary isn't correct you're not going to build an international audience you want to see how to do it right 
look at what happened with Bathurst, look at what happened with the Dubai 24 Hours, and full kudos here to the Radio Show Limited team for what they brought to both those events. Um, those both were raised another level by providing a quality of commentary. And I should say, by the way, I'm not bringing my own bell here because I was a Johnny-come-lately to both of those events. Um, so, you know, pleased to be part of what happened in the years that followed. But the big heavy lifting there was done by people turning up and for that matter by the way the GT World crew that SRO provide internationally mm. where they come along there is plug-in and plays the rest of the SRO aren't they yeah as long as John Watson you know learns a few more names uh, properly um, then absolutely fine the, the reality is it's it's a tough job you, you don't come into it lightly you, n- you never ever should and those that do are pretty rapidly exposed mm. Kevin Kemp on Twitter says, Graham, after hearing Stefan Rattel's explanation of the overregulation on pit stops, do you still think these regulations are necessary? Hashtag me personally, I still don't like them. Can't they just mandate a brake change and standard refueling rigs for all cars and let them race? Um, I should explain exactly what this was. I, I, you know, the, the listeners, regular listeners will not be unaware about my loathing for the overregulation of some of the kind of the races that we cover. Uh, so I asked him some pretty blunt questions and he gave me some actually really good answers and uh, I would urge people if you're interested in this aspect to, to listen to what Stefan had to say it was a remarkably open and a lucid uh, series of explanations um, and yes I counterpunched by saying but yes shouldn't we still be rewarding excellence um, I think it's still a bit of an open book. I absolutely 100% respect uh, the answers that you gave me. I absolutely still believe that we've not got the balance correct and that we need to introduce an aspect that encourages excellence on the team front to it. So, um, you look, oddly, as a, politically as a natural liberal with a small L... Um, you know that would you'd seem to think people seem to think that that means you'd kind of embrace regulation. I embrace sensible regulation. Um, I certainly don't embrace overregulation. I completely see where Stefan was was coming from, and there's aspects of it that I agree with, but I still think we've ended up in a place that people don't really want to be, which is a race that it just has too many corners. Mm. And I don't mean that physically on the track. I mean it's it's there's too many pages in the real real book for me. Hmm. Let's. Uh, I'll just quickly point out that Matthias Longo asked roughly the same question. Oh. There, so we did read that. Uh, I can answer it again if you like. Yeah, you could answer it again. I give a but, completely different um, answer. I, you know. we've, I'd rather watch paint dry. Uh, anyway, fun. Let's get to the final section. There Fun's are always t- a good thing. There are only two questions left. Not much start- fun then. No, not much fun today. Peter Bester on Twitter says, this is a light-hearted one, which is, oh, sorry, what is the best, um, not uh, sort of not known for years about, um, and worst, got caught straight away, examples of cheating you've ever seen? Oh, come on, you've got to go a long way to go better than Toyota back in the World Rally Championship and the heavily engineered, um, you know, overboost function they put into the Celica. If you've not, if you're not aware of this one, please go and look at it. I'm not aware of this one actually. You're not? No, no, no they got hammered. They were ba- <laughs> banned for a long time for that one. Uh, but this was a. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked, but it was basically it would only operate uh, when the engine was operating in certain kind of conditions. But basically, if you looked at it and you examined it really rather closely, it looked like a solid piece. 
but it wasn't that uh, under basic load it would open up and that's amazing yeah but they I think they got a two year ban for international competition for that one really oh yeah oh huge uh, but that wow. that for me there's all sorts of other legends about you know nitrous systems plugged into roll cages and um, you know uh, underscaled NASCARs and god knows what else but you know there's all sorts of things that kind of yeah kind of catch catch people out there's some absolute caucus I think Marshall wrote a piece about this on Racer some mm. little while ago it's it's just it's just caught I think there's I think there was something there I think there was the MP did write something for Racer it said do Google that one mm. or did just use the search function on Racer.com and you'll find it but look you can't there's something massively admirable about a criminal level of cunning and <laughs> and yeah, I mean, yeah, that that was particularly naughty. But it's an odd thing. Even if you really respect the rule book, the sort of level of admiration for doing it that well, but then getting caught. Yeah, it's, it, and it's hard in terms of ones that got caught straight away recently. That there's so many. We just flooded, aren't we? At the moment, we're teams getting disqualified and excluded from. Oh, races. Been, Most of it's it's not people it's, genuinely it's trying to cheat. Edgy. It's, it's people just be edgy. Yeah, or you know not quite knowing the rules perfectly in some cases well you know it's for me it's the kind of i think that's the other part of the of the um the picture we we're just talking about the kind of overregulation to be honest with you there's overregulation and then there's an overreliance on post race decision making and the importance of stewards and technical i'd just like to see an area of common sense here i'd just like to see a moment in time where we consider do you really want us to be here until three o'clock in the morning, pouring over whether or not that kind of ninth of a millimetre on the skid plate is really an important enough issue to disqualify somebody from an international motor race? Do we really want to do that? I think we could do with... <sighs> There's that fantastic phrase, the age of enlightenment. Uh, I'd like to see somewhere between the age of enlightenment and the age of bullshit, and somewhere in the middle where everything kind of comes together and we can all agree... Yeah, okay, on balance, fair dues, um, let's let that one fly. Uh, and I think people at the moment, we're, it seems we've got this moment of terror where anything that is even on the edge of the rules um, is seen as being, let, let's edge towards caution. Come on, let's edge towards competition, let's edge towards doing what racers do. And, you know, I'd like to see the bluff call from people who, if, if the call there is, yeah, but yeah, hang on a minute, we might be challenged on that. We might actually find ourselves in a position where that becomes an issue further down the line and we, we might find ourselves part of some kind of liability claim. Come on, guys, it's motorsport. Come on, let's just get to the stage where competition rules. Mm. Um, and, yeah, if someone's over the line and substantially over the line, let's kick their ass. Let's make sure that people realise they shouldn't be taking those decisions. But let's not punish people to such a degree for being on the line and finding themselves a tiny bit over you know when we're talking about fractions of millimetres I, I just cannot see that that's a good enough reason um, to remove a hard one result over a you know, 10, 12, 24 hour race final question wow comes from Dean Moore on Facebook it says with John Bennett stepping down you discussed the um, you discussed the lack of AM drivers in DPI last week. If you could force any team owner slash director into the driver's seat, who would it be? Roger Penske to Acura. 
<laughs> be an interesting one, wouldn't it? Martin Short, we would be. Oh, no, he's Martin Short, <laughs> way well, Martin's Martin's way too competitive. <laughs> if Martin's listening, old if he's not. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, hi, Martin. Um, so who would you put into the car as an AM driver? That's a cracking question, isn't it? Just trying to work my way through. Chip Ganassi, if you're alone, wouldn't it? If you could, that, that, I'm not Chip it. Ganassi. <laughs> I, I tell you what, downhill racing, you'd be bloody quick. <laughs> not hill climbing. No. We're yes. in the Pikes Peak. In no. The, in the, no. So no chip. Um, Doonan might be quite good. I don't know how quick Don John Doonan is. He's one of those people who probably done so many laps in a Mazda MX-5 cup car yeah. that he'd probably be quite good. He'd be, he probably would relish it, but uh, he probably wouldn't like people to kind of realise that. But um, So when you think about it, Ashes are remarkable. There's a lot of team owners that you think, oh, hang I'll on, tell he you has be, raced. No, I'll <laughs> no. tell you, somebody would be very, very good. Now it occurs to you. And the one that I, I would think that people would not want to see get into is Richard Dean. Richard, mm. you know, really very quick in his day, title-winning driver, multiple title-winning driver, Le British GT, among class winner, uh, as late as late as 2006. For that matter, Lawrence Tomlinson mm. and uh, Janetta, a highly competitive man. I've seen him barrel a Janetta like nobody, no other man alive. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but he, you know, back in the day, in a TVR and a Panos, for that matter, with Janetta Sitek. And by the way, all those three cars on display this weekend uh, at uh, Silverstone. I think that could be quite an interesting one. You know, it'd be quite that'd be quite fun as a challenge race, wouldn't it? Mm. What about Amato Ferrari? Who knows? He's he so could be sneakily good, couldn't he? Yeah, I'd never get through the the. the um, I remember some years ago um, looking for an interview with Amato, and Amato famously never gives interviews. And uh, Matt Griffin saying, uh, uh, see me in the garage and saying, oh, he, he had to say, oh, Marta. He says, oh, Marta. He says, you've got more chance of actually getting an audience with the Pope. <laughs> and I think it is a bit like that. But um, he could be very good. Yeah. Actually, I've just thought of it. Stuart Cox. From our GoPro race. That's enough from the <laughs> <laughs> I think Stuart would be massively competitive. The radio would be hilarious. The radio would the be. Radio that thing. would be a YouTube video, wouldn't it? That right there. <laughs> you thought Kimi you know, Raikkonen was stand, funny. Stand aside, yeah. Kimi Raikkonen, uh, Stuart Cox, and his, his <laughs> notes to his engineer. I don't think there'd be a lot of listening going on with there, but it would be funny. Stuart, we love you dearly. That's it this week from a truncated version, a slightly belated version of a game we apologise, Other Week in Sports Cars, with me, Graham Goodwin, with you, Stephen Kilby, and thanks again. Thanks to Ryan Kish as well for him putting the questions together thanks for the other man sitting in the room by the way quietly you might have heard the rustling of the KFC bags coming in earlier uh, Adam <laughs> Weller for fetching the dinner which now we're about to devour in a way not seen previously since a caveman actually you know, uh, hacked into a woolly mammoth um, with thanks again to the wonderful people at uh, Cooper Tyres and the even more I'm going to say it now out loud even more wonderful people the Justice Brothers uh, that's been the week in sports cars this week we'll be back with you next week but look out for some other special programmes from the FIWC and some carryover coverage we've still got to uh, air from the Suzuka 10 Hours uh, we'll see you next week <laughs>